It is really amazing in a society that um, is opposed to discrimination and different, that you would categorically ban any business rather than judging it based on its particular conduct, right? If it's meeting the laws and it can demonstrate that it's operating well in all these categories, um, it should be able, that should be enough to protect it, but it's not. It's very prejudicial kind of legislation. And of course, the irony as far as what we're talking about right now is the fact that the place that the public really can't be sure of where the dogs come from are the local shelters and rescue groups. Hi, I'm Heidi Harriet. Welcome to this episode of Animal Tales, where we talk about my favorite subject, animals. I'm proud to be a third generation animal trainer, caretaker, and animal welfare expert following in the footsteps of my father and grandfather. I've been so privileged throughout my life to hear from the true experts, see them in action and learn from them. People who live with, care for, and work with animals, subject matter professionals. They're truly amazing. They dedicate their lives to working with animals in various industries and occupations. Yet they're vilified by the vocal minority, the animal rights extremists, fake news, misinformation, but the public typically buys into it. They're a loud voice out there. It's important that I do this podcast to provide stories, to tell these stories, provide experts for you to hear from so you can have a better opportunity to make up your mind with more information. It's really difficult to find credible information about animal-related businesses. Again, one of the reasons I'm doing the podcast. Worse yet, for those who don't look too deep, it's very easy to be duped by very credibly appearing stories about the atrocities of animals used for entertainment, research, hunting, sport, food. I can personally attest to the fact that I was writing an article on a subject I knew quite a bit about, And I wasn't able to find the information that I knew to be true. I had to go through almost a dozen pages of Google to find the information that really should have been on page one. I was astounded. Now I'm wondering, do the groups use money donated to care for animals for search engine optimization? I really don't know what else to think. It's really concerning because I encourage you to take a deeper dive And you're going to get information with the narrative of the animal rights agenda. Well, fortunately, there's an organization that is a tremendous resource I can't recommend highly enough. The National Animal Interest Alliance. Its founder, Patty Strand, has been at the helm for 30 years. They do amazing work. It exists to provide authentic, credible sources of information about animals related businesses, and the people who love and care for them. We discuss everything from animal rights to animal welfare and the fact that shelters are importing over a million dogs from other countries to meet the demand. So please welcome to the podcast, Patty Strand. Hi, Patty. It's great to have you here. Hi, Heidi. It's nice to see you. It'd be better to see you in person, but yes, good to talk to you. Yeah, and I just saw you earlier this year, and it was a delight at the at the we co- we say NIA National Animal Interest Alliance conference, and um, 
you've done such great work for so many years. I met you when I got into the fray of being kind of a spokesperson and representing the industry, um, the exhibited animal side of the industry, way back in the 90s. And you were one of my first resources that felt like I had help and someone out there swimming in that pond. Tell us what Naya is and how you, what, how it came to be. Well, um, I'm a dog breeder. I've bred Dalmatians for 52 years and it was just a, a wonderful, fun adventure. You know, my husband and I started bought our first Dalmatian in the late 60s. And you know, the Vietnam War was coming to an end and we got to go to every every weekend, we'd go to dog shows. They were like little picnics. It was like a Norman Rockwell kind of affair. Very fun, both my husband and I worked, of course. So this was just a, a weekend adventure. And it went on like that for 20 years. And you know, we certainly, in looking at it and enjoying it at the time, could not imagine that it was in some some way evil but starting in the mid 1980s late 1980s uh, a whole batch of legislation was was uh, launched against dog breeders and was always launched against ostensibly really bad breeders with lots of dogs doing terrible things it was always accompanied by horrible photos and so on. Uh, but when we would go and look at it, by the way, I'm, a, I'm an AKC dog judge as well. And so I belong to a group called the Oregon Dog Judges Association. So when Oregon was hit with this legislation, I was asked to go and represent them at the Capitol. And uh, that was my first trek into any kind of legislative affairs. The name of the bill was Oregonians Against Puppy Mills. <laughs> and with a name like that, you would assume that this is a, a, a bill that we would all support. And in fact, when I was sent, I was sent to find out if you know, if this was a bill that we should support because there's nobody, I mean, just the term itself is not uh, a term that anybody would go, yeah, I want more of those. So yeah, exactly. I went down to the, went down to the Capitol and um, decided, I, I do have a degree in political science, not that it's ever really been terribly relevant for what I've wound up doing, even though I've lobbied for 30 years now. But I went down to the Capitol and I uh, assumed that you would just, you know, when there's a bad bill, when there's language that is, um, you know, representing things in an inaccurate way or whatever. You just go in and, you know, offer an amendment. That was my sense of how things worked. Yeah. But one of the things that is always true of animal rights versus animal welfare legislation is that um, it's aimed to create conflict, right? And so one of the things I believe that happens with legislators that take on this stuff is they are warned in advance that there's going to be an enormous amount of pushback and they are encouraged or told, you know, if you can't carry this bill and just uh, pass it as it is, don't accept it because um, you're going to have a tremendous push and we don't want to work this change anyway. So that is what I found out is that this bill that turned out to have you know, overreaching effects, ones that wouldn't just affect bad breeders, but all breeders, it was anti-breeding per se, that it couldn't be amended, even even one word of it. 
also found out that the backers of it had just moved to Oregon like 15 minutes before the legislative session and, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of things like that that, you know, kind of tipped you off that it was a different kind of piece of legislation. Anyway, we worked on that bill for the whole session. It was a bill that was similar to bills that were introduced at the same time around the country. We did defeat it in the end and we got hundreds of people at the Capitol multiple times. So we did a really good job on that. But in the course of that legislative session, I met people from the sheep growers, cattlemen, dairy people, biomedical research, people involved with biomedical research, uh, people involved with zoos, etc. And um, they all said, gee whiz, gosh, the animal rights movement is coming after pets now. We knew that that was part of the animal rights agenda, but we really didn't think that we were likely to see them come after you this soon. We thought it would be in a few years. Anyway, so I got to know all these people. And in particular, I bonded pretty closely with some of the people who were associated with the research community. Um, I met several people who were advocates for research because they were alive because of animal research and uh, chose to go out and speak on its behalf. But anyway, we, uh, we um, as a result of that, I was asked to write some articles for one of the big national dog trade publications because we were one of the only places in the country that beat this particular kind of legislation. So I did, I wrote a series of articles. I actually thought I would just write one, but it got such pushback from the animal rights movement that it spurred me to do a little bit more. Now, what happened um, as a result of this first article was that we all realized that um, yeah, I don't know how much you know about the purebred dog community, but every parent club for every breed has a rescue wing. So the Dalmatian Club of America has Dalmatian Club of America Rescue, Doberman Pinscher Club of America, likewise. We had been doing rescue from the beginning of time. We didn't always call it rescue in the 70s. I'm not sure we had that name yet. By the 80s, it was called rescue and every parent club had a branch that was engaged in that. Well, what we found out was that Groups such as PETA and other very extreme animal rights groups had become very involved in, had uh, insinuated themselves into a great number of the rescue groups um, that were associated with purebred dogs. So I think, uh, and this is just speculation on my part, but given how mild the article was, my first article that I wrote, Given how mild it was, um, the reaction from the extremist groups was uh, just incredibly uh, bold, big, um, over the top. I'm quite sure that it's because they could see that there would be a... Um, that they were going to be losing a lot of their support in the rescue groups that they had so carefully cultivated for so many years. Sure, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's just in retrospect. So, yeah. so then, you know, um, after I did that article, uh, the publisher of the magazine, he got a lot of pushback too. He was a very... Uh, a good writer, a good editor. He had written for Vanity Fair before he chose to work for his hobby in this dog trade magazine. And um, he got threats. And he said in all the years he'd been in publishing and writing, he'd never experienced anything like that. So anyway, yeah, that's he asked, a popular tactic, isn't it? To threaten and sue or right. threaten personally and all of that. Yeah. 
So I decided I'd do a little bit of research. I mean, by this time, I'm having met the people in research that told me that they knew of people who were hiding in their basement because the activists were so extreme. You know, we're talking about fire bombings and, you know, death threats, just, you know, ad nauseum, just constant, uh, constantly. Under Patty, that I have to jump in here and say it was I saw that this summer with um, or just recently, I guess, this spring when they did that to the uh, Supreme Court justices. I was oh, pretty yeah. much looking at the TV and saying to people around me, this is exactly the tactic that they've been using with us, animal owners and responsible people, where they come to our homes, they threaten us, fire bombs, death threats, right? But because bull it was horns, a, yeah, horns waking up the entire because it was a Supreme Court justices, medical researchers and animal people have been experiencing that for three decades, right? Yeah, yeah. Sorry was, um, to interrupt you, but yeah, yeah the parallel there. Yeah, there absolutely is. And I remember, gosh, in the 90s, thinking that we could um, utilize the decisions that had been granted to African-Americans who had crosses burned in their front yards, very similar, horrible intimidation practice. But somehow or another, uh, this has not really been available to the research community. I do think that there have been some mod modifications. I think they have to stand outside their yard now. They have to be in the street or, you know, somewhere uh, beyond the actual front yard. But uh, yeah, this went on all through the 90s. Uh, Bullhorns in the middle of the night and people tapping on your bedroom window. Yeah. And and, and they're relentless, you know. The thing is, is that you're dealing with true zealots here. And so it doesn't, uh, it isn't like you can, you know, have a conversation with these people or convince them otherwise. They're, they're not listening. They're on fire with their, their doctrine. And let's qualify that because absolutely, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you as a guest, the, the leaders of these groups are absolute zealots. They're extremists. There's, and we're talking about what people would consider mainstream groups, starting with PETA, the Humane Society of the United States, even the ASPCA, and then we get out into the Animal Liberation Front um, and many more. And these are all going to be in show notes as well, in resources. But they're, what they do is take people who truly care about animals, right? And they indoctrinate them. It's it's really what we saw to me in the the Black Lives Matter um, episodes over the last, especially during 2020 and 2021, where they take well-intentioned individuals and they co-opt them and they they put in their ringers, if you will, right? Paid protesters and people, and and they incite hatred and they incite riots. And I, again, looking at the TV the last couple of years, this is something we've experienced for decades. But I, I always say on this podcast, if you care about animals and you're looking to do something to help that, we're in line with that. We're on the same page. It's when you go to these extremist groups thinking you're helping animals. I want, I want to help educate people that that's not where this is at. You don't go to those groups. You actually support National Animal Interest Alliance, the International Elephant Foundation, Homes for Animal Heroes, right? Those are the opportunities to help animals. Is, would you, no doubt, Naya is always providing that same message. 
Yeah, that, that's right. It's so interesting that you bring up Black Lives Matter because the tactics are nearly identical. Yes. And I, I think that it may have to do with the fact that both movements are were founded by, Mar- you know, they are Marxist movements, right? We yeah. know that the founder of the animal rights movement or the uh, philosopher who wrote Animal Liberation was an avowed Marxist. And mm-hmm. just so many of the tactics... Um, that push these movements, these anarchist movements along, are the same. They're, they're very, very similar. So let's and take that into what Naya, what what you did with the National Animal Interest Alliance, what your, you know, how you came to be in your very great diverse board is really amazing. Yeah, well, everybody that we associate with loves animals. We have the people who are the animal welfare experts. That's the irony, of course. Um, but basically, we just realized there wasn't a voice for um, just average American, mainstream kind of Americans, the 94 to 96% of the population that believes in true animal welfare, yes. which is the belief that animals should be treated responsibly and humanely. But there isn't, uh, they don't equate animal use with animal abuse. And of course, that's that's the difference between, uh, in terms of philosophy, between animal welfare and animal rights. So and animal welfare, we believe in the interaction and the celebrate the bond between humans and animals. And we, we recognize that we must be responsible caretakers and stewards. And the, this is the people, the animals that entertain the pets, sport and medical research and food that we need to be responsible. Now explain versus the animal rights community. What, does, what makes up animal rights? Well, the philosophy is that any use of animals is inhumane, and irresponsible, wrong, evil. I mean, it depends on how far into the movement you are. You talked a little bit ago about indoctrination. There, it very clearly at some levels operates like a cult. Um, you know, they sort of get people in the door with the, you know, they love animals. They show them pictures of animals being tortured. We don't know who's doing the torturing. Um, somehow or another, they assign it to a particular community. This is what happens in agriculture or this is what happens in dog breeding. And of course, you know, the problem for all of us on our side of the fence is that we're dealing with human beings. And so no matter what enterprise we're talking about, there will be some black sheep out there. But what they are really good at doing is making that black sheep look like it represents he represents the whole of the industry and we are you know we're pretty open-minded we're pretty tolerant in terms of our acceptance of other points of view certainly not of hurting animals but other points of view regarding animal welfare and animal rights we just oppose um we just oppose people who try to push their views on others by lies, by intimidation, by threats, or, you know, terrorism, which is part of the animal rights movement. It's a continuum, right? So that's that's really the big deal. And I think that, you know, the zealotry part of what um, the leaders are involved in is really big. I, I always, I watch a guy on YouTube, he's a Princeton professor of political science of, of uh, some repute, and he's done a number of books on Stalin. He's an expert on um, the Soviet Union and Stalin in particular. And uh, he said one of the questions that, that they always get is, 
did the did the communists really believe in communism? <laughs> and and he and he answers the question. He said, "Yes, they did. That's all they believed in. They they were indoctrinated, and they followed a very you know very uh, strictly outlined doctrine of communism. And and that's the thing that uh, I think is missed a lot by people who look at this movement." Because it is so multi-layered, you know, I think 90% of the people who are giving money, for instance, to some of these national animal rights groups really believe like you and I do. They love animals. They, they've got their beds, their dogs sleeping on the bed with them. Right. And they're cooking special food for their pets. And they want to see animals and livestock and, and all these other venues treated well. They would be... Um, unhappy disappointed they would want to take action they would want but they would do it legally they would do it through uh, the the processes that are available and above board and legal and so on so 90 percent of the people who are donating money really believe um like like you and i and uh, 94 96 percent of the rest of the public but the leadership is zealous yes and they're very committed to to the indoctrination and to probably a bigger worldview that has very little to do with animals, right? That's I what mean, people any- don't understand. That's the scary part, that there is a, a definite agenda, and it's not circus elephants. It's not carriage horses. It's actually, that's where it starts. But make no mistake, I mean, it's well documented that they don't think you should have pets. And uh, And again, I couldn't agree with you more. The average person and probably the listeners of this podcast, I, I certainly hope, <laughs> are, the, are the people who really care about animals. And I always say that, you know, that's where we're in line. We care about animals, but they're misguided. And the, they, frankly, the animal rights community have no business, no expertise at animals at all. They have no business even talking about them in any expert fashion. They should, however, teach college courses how to spin a narrative how to how to fundraise right and how to how to take a a lie and turn it into make it an absolute truth you know and make people believe it i mean i feel like we need their playbook to counter back and patty i'm going to come back with you we're going to talk about a few things including these commercial pet bands this is just a small example of the information you can find on the national animal interest alliance website niaonline.org I'm talking with Patty Strand, the founder of the National Animal Interest Alliance. So once again, we're talking with Patty Strand, the president of the National Animal Interest Alliance, and having a very robust conversation about the difference between animal rights and animal welfare. And so important to distinguish that the majority of us are animal welfare advocates. We believe in celebrating the bond between humans and animals. We want animals in our lives. Maybe we, we enjoy uh, sport with animals, maybe entertainment or just our pets, whatever it is. We believe in medical research. As long as we do it properly and we do the best care and the best by these animals, in contrast, animal rights advocates and extremists or animal rights uh, activists, I'm sorry, believe there should be no interaction between humans and animals and talk about the utopian wild as though it actually exists. And the experts we've had on this program, veterinarians and behavioralists and such, have indicated that, in fact, you know, it's managed by humans. So, Patty, I mentioned um, that I want to talk to you about these commercial pet bans, which is, again, they try to get us with legislation and lawsuits because it ties up 
our resources and our ability to respond, I, I equate it to putting brush fires all over and then figuring out where our side is going to send our fire trucks and we're going to lose, we're going to not, you know, be able to handle some of these. I live in uh, Pinellas County, Florida, and St. Petersburg enacted the ban that is now uh, active in five states, I believe, where you cannot purchase a dog, a puppy, or cat commercially, so at a pet store um, in these areas, in Pinellas County and some of these states, you can only purchase or pay for an animal from a shelter or rescue. It doesn't mean you can't go privately to a breeder, but it's certainly not, it's certainly not encouraged. So um, we've put, and one of the most interesting thing I saw on this, Patty, was that because we don't know where these animals come from at these breeding commercial sales shops, but yet where the shelters are where we're pushing people and we really don't know where those animals come from. So talk to us about that legislation. And then we'll talk a little bit more about the actual shelters. Yeah, that's a, a continuing campaign that the animal rights movement has is to close down retail outlets for pets. And you know, if you go back 30, 35, 40 years, there might've been a basis for saying, we don't know where these animals come from, but we do know that uh, many of them are not being bred in conditions that any of us would really support. So, and by the way, that's part of almost every one of the animal rights issues is that historically things have really changed. Society has really changed over the last 30 or 40 years. Yes. I think wealth of this country enables people the luxury to really think about these things where if you're talking about things that happened in the 40s or 50s, people were still recovering from the war and just trying to put food on the table. And so these ideas weren't as sexy or as saleable. <clears throat> but what has happened and the thing that it that uh, really saddens me is that the commercial pet industry itself has completely transformed itself in the last 20 to 25 years and it's done so through a number of different uh, pressures and processes and so on but the difference between the commercial dog breeding industry today and even 20 years ago is night and day truly it is and um, uh, in addition to the changes that they've made themselves USDA enacted a policy about 10 to 12 years ago, maybe not quite that long ago, I'd have to look it up, that for the first time enabled um, pet stores who buy from commercial breeders to know how well those people are doing according to their USDA records and inspections. Okay. So they began to publish their inspection reports online and so starting about 10 12 years ago pet stores were able to assess whether or not the person they were dealing with three or four states away were conducting themselves according to the current laws and that really made a big difference that makes a difference all along the supply chain because if pet stores don't want to buy your dogs right. because you have some demerits in your report then you have to up your game or get out of it. So it actually is one of those things where economic pressures um, actually had a really big impact and USDA allowing this to, to go online has made just a tremendous difference. And that's because breeders are licensed and regulated. They right? are licensed and And people and don't seem to realize that. They just equate everything to a puppy mill, but there's actually regulations and licensing. Historically, USDA didn't publish these records. Historically, USDA didn't 
ever was never they were always given the job they were always laws passed but they were not given the funding so that they could properly enforce anything regarding the animal welfare act as far as uh, dog breeding was concerned so the changes that have occurred there in funding and putting the reports online and um, just various um, a lot of different rulemaking that has occurred has has really improved that sector so Fast forward, since the zealots really don't care about animal welfare and improvements that may have been made in breeding, um, they have upped their game. You have to. One of the things that, that's lost on the public is that retail pet stores are about the only other brick and mortar source of dogs in a city. Um, other than the Humane Society. So the Humane Societies and shelters, some of them at least, many of them, have really seen the pet stores as sort of competition for the same customers. And then enter groups like the Humane Society of the United States um, coming forward, uh, trying to uh, make themselves look like they are virtuous and care more than anybody else. And also that they support the local Humane Societies um, have created this campaign or have fostered this campaign. And I think there's been hundreds and hundreds of ordinances and uh, bills now to close pet stores. In fact, there were over 400 last time I looked and over 300 of the bans that have been passed were passed in cities of, of, there were 400 bans passed. A lot of them passed in little towns you've never heard of. But of those over 400, over 300 of them were in cities that had no pet store to begin with. Right. So this gives you an idea of the sophistication of the marketing. This is sort of a bandwagon kind of marketing campaign where they go city to city that doesn't have a pet store. And then when they go to a town that does have a pet store, they're able to say, well, we have X number of cities have already signed on to right. this. And it's, you know, it's a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good hook, actually. We for- don't realize our rights are being taken away. We're being told. We can't go to the local pet store, which is regulated. And by all means, if they're not doing a good job, put them out of business or prosecute them under current laws available. But just by virtue of the fact that they sell dogs or cats, we can't go there and buy them in these municipalities and five, at least five states, I believe it is now. We have, we're told that we have to go to the shelter. I'm an animal trainer. I'm an expert in animal training. I'm a third generation and I will stand by the fact, and there are a lot of great shelters and rescues out there. However, the reason the fluffy little dog is in a shelter more often than not is under training. Most families aren't equipped to deal with a lot of their children and try to take in a dog that has some kind of issues because it wasn't done right by the original owner or people. So it's never the animal's fault, of course. This is a really deep subject that we're going to get into in a two-parter coming up, but I'm going to let you go back down um, with the pet ban and where that is. But it's taken our rights away. I mean, we people don't realize the extent of this. The yeah, average person. it is. It is really amazing in a society that um, 
is opposed to discrimination and different that you would categorically ban any business rather than judging it based on its particular conduct right if it's meeting the laws and it can demonstrate that it's operating well in all these categories um it should be able that should be enough to protect it but it's not it's very prejudicial kind of legislation and of course the irony as far as what we're talking about right now is the fact that the place that the public really can't be sure of where the dogs come from are the local shelters and rescue groups that are moving dogs, starting um, with the end of dog overpopulation in much of the country at the end of the 90s. I mean, it's been uh, the number of dogs, the number of surplus dogs, uh, dogs that are um, greater than the demand in an area can can deal with, um, has been dropping steadily uh, since spaying and neutering became popular in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it's been a continuous drop in the number of excess dogs. Well, at this point in time, 35 to 38 states out of 50 no longer have a surplus problem. And at the end of the 90s, we're really, really moving into a period where she was. There's a greater demand than supply in a lot of the states that are out there. Wait a so, minute. Wait a minute. Tell me it isn't so. Patty, you got to repeat that because I tell people this and they look at me like I have two heads. Say that again because I know you're the folks. Naya keeps the statistics on this. So I want you to say that again. I want people to hear that again because that was, I want them to really understand this. Well, it's a very complicated issue, but when you think about dog overpopulation, what you're really talking about is whether supply and demand in a given area is in equilibrium. And if you go back to, you know, pre-spay-neuter period and before that became a popular surgery for people and before people really learned to confine their dogs, um, you had great surpluses. You really did. You had thousands and thousands of animals being put to sleep everywhere. In my local area in 1973, Portland, Oregon was about half the size it is now. And we were putting to sleep 18,000 dogs in Portland, Oregon alone. So it was a real issue. I think a matter of people moving from the farm to the city and not learning uh, how to, you know, how to handle their dogs in that environment. I know when I grew up, I'm very old. <laughs> I, I grew up in the 40s. I was a toddler running around, and they didn't. Most of my neighbors didn't have fences. We we lived on a city street with sidewalks and and trees and all of that. But the dogs just ran the neighborhood. So, dogs. Um, you had stray populations producing dogs, and you had. Uh, everybody and his brother. I think there was a, a big feature article in the Sears catalog about encouraging people to get into breeding dogs. They could make their egg money or whatever. Right. So you had everybody and his brother breeding dogs plus stray dogs out there on the street. Too much information. I'm sorry I'm going to giving you no, too much. But, but I want um, you to go back to that there aren't enough dogs but, but, to meet the but, demand. Yeah, what's what's happened is that we have, guess what? The public got the message. They understood there was an overpopulation problem. They began to spay their dogs. They began to confine their dogs. They began to train their dogs. They started to understand that just because they had an intact dog, they didn't need to breed it. And lo and behold, the number of dogs in sh- entering shelters began to decline uh, just steadily. Uh, and by the end of the 1990s, many states were either in equilibrium, supply and demand was in balance, 
or there was a greater demand than supply. And the thing that really made the difference for different areas of the country was whether or not they had implemented reasonable animal control laws, maybe in the 70s, 80s, 90s, versus some of the states that were more rural, more agricultural, and didn't have those kinds of laws. And the way it breaks out today is about 35 to 38 states are either in equilibrium or have a greater demand than supply, leaving 12 to 15 states still with a surplus. And they are the states where um, rural agricultural kind of states, they're in the South, mostly well i guess entirely at this point and uh, but all of them are getting better too all of them the number of dogs excess dogs being produced in their areas are declining but what happened then at the end of the 90s you have a bit of a crisis in among some of the big shelters that had had plenty of dogs to adopt out to the public and a lot of opportunity to share with the public that they had dogs in need and therefore raise funds around the issue, um, they started to have shortages of dogs. And so something called humane relocation began. It started as a state-to-state -state kind of uh, enterprise or city-to-city -city enterprise. Maybe a little town over in eastern Oregon didn't have a big enough population to uh, to have adopters available for the excess dogs they had. So they would send those dogs to a big city like Portland, Oregon, in my case, where there's a lot of people to adopt dogs. And anyway, so it made some sense. It was, it was not a bad thing if it was conducted responsibly, if you had people involved in the process that cared about treating the animals right and transport, not necessarily uh, moving dogs to areas where they could be adopted if they were had a history of, of um, aggression, right. that sort of thing. So it, didn't, it wasn't really a, a big problem. It was a problem solver and it helped to continue to lower the number of dogs available um, or excess dogs available. And where do we get dogs from now? And so now, fast forward, starting in the 2000s, um, we are importing dogs from overseas. And of course, that's another one of the ironies when we talk about pet stores having problems and wondering what their source of dogs is. The do their source of dogs by law has to be regulated. The, the breeders have to be licensed. They have to be inspected. And we're getting dogs now from developing countries that um, don't have the health care, don't have the veterinary care. Maybe these dogs have never seen a veterinary. Maybe there's no veterinarian whatsoever in their communities. And also from countries that have decided that um, it could be a very lucrative crop uh, to raise for the United States. So we also have a lot of breeding farms developing throughout not only the developing world, but um, some of the old Soviet bloc countries and so on. And they send the dogs to the United States. Um, I will tell you, CDC did a report on this. We, we have- Center for Disease Control, right? Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we uh, began to track this pretty heavily right around the beginning right about the beginning of this century because we hadn't heard of this really before at all. And I had a couple uh, veterinarians call me that had seen things that kind of worried them. One was a veterinary pathologist in Southern California and she went in to adopt a dog. She was interested in the Labrador and she just happened to look up on the wall and notice that the dog was from 
someplace in South Asia. And as a pathologist, she, uh, you know, she started asking some questions about what kind of testing the dog had had for different kinds of pathogens and so on, and didn't get answers she liked. And so we were alerted and we started to follow it. Well, by 2007, um, there was, um, CDC did their first estimate on the number of dogs coming in. And at that time, they said it was about 287,000 dogs. That was 2007. By the way, we, we were part of a front page article on USA Today back in 2003 on this subject. So we've, we've definitely been deeply engaged in this for a long time. Fast forward to 2018, we have our group has, uh, has introduced legislation called the Healthy Dog Importation Act. And it is a bill that simply requires that the dogs that come into the United States have proper vaccinations and proper health tests and be microchipped. Basically, all the same things that you would require if you're going to fly your dog state to state within the United States. So anyway, uh, as a in order to demonstrate that this was really a problem because although we had been tracking it and although our records were very, very good, uh, uh, very well done, uh, we needed a government report. And so we asked that USDA do a study and working with CDC, they came up with a study in 2019 assessing the number of dogs that came in in 2018 and it was a million point oh six oh to a million point two. And what's you know, that's a staggering number, especially when you consider how loose our requirements are for dogs coming in the country, that you had dogs coming in with virtually no oversight. Um, and cases in, of parvo and distemper, different types, strains we hadn't seen in this country, correct? That's and right. No as far as shots. Yeah. Some of those infectious diseases. But yes, we also had lethal diseases like rabies that we really haven't seen in dogs in this country, you know, for decades. So we're Patty, think- I'm going to stop you there because we are we've got so much to unpack here. I'm going to have you on again. I actually want to do a couple more uh, se- sessions podcasts about the shelter because talk about the uncomfortable middle, which is a common theme on my podcast got the happy face, right? With the happy emoji or the care heart emoji. And then we've got the angry face or the tear. You and I both see these utilized for animal issues extremely. Like we're so low, warm and fuzzy over here and we're really angry over here. I think the thinking face, right? The thoughtful, like be curious, um, be, be thoughtful, wonder why these things are going on or be open to the information. I call that the uncomfortable middle. There's no better example of that than this shelter, I call the shelter myth. And so I want to I wanna wrap this up, but I'm definitely going to have you back. We've already talked about that. But I want to just um, run through my bullet list. Something you said that caught my attention is you, were, uh, you went to tell legislators the real story, and you thought, well, you know, when you were a young breeder and you knew this was a lie, well, we'll just tell them the truth, and surely they'll want to know that, right? And we I've had so the naive. yeah, I've had the so same naive. experience. <laughs> I, I, amen, sister. I've been right there with you. And then um, also, they don't want better conditions. They don't want these animal rights groups. And again, we're talking about mainstream groups, the heads of these groups, not the people who really care about animals and who are misled, but. They don't want bigger cages is the expression we use. They want empty cages. We cannot placate them. We cannot make them happy. 
no matter what we do. So now they're legislating animals out of business. And I want to visit this with you. If we spay and neuter every animal and we're not allowed to sell dogs commercially, I think we could all do the math and figure out how long before we have no more pets. I don't understand why nobody's asking that question. And I also want to talk the next time about the 4,000 beagles and unpack that story a little bit. That's been a huge story in the summer of 2022. And lastly, all these co-opted names that the animal rights community claims now, the word captivity has become a bad word. The word rescue. These were take not over the language. take over our language and then come up with adopt, don't shop and puppy mill and um, those types of things. So all these are on my mind and there's no better person to have this discussion with. So I totally appreciate your time. I'm just want to make sure we um, break this down into some edible bites because there's yeah. a lot here for people <laughs> to take in. It's like, you know, it's like they say people who go to Africa and stay a week, come back and write an, uh, a book. If they stay a month, they come back and write an article. And if they stay for five years, they don't talk about it at all. There's just too much. It's overwhelming. I love that. And, and there are so many levels and layers to this. I mean, then you yeah. you bring up a lot of different topics that want to send me someplace else. I want to talk about this I know. Anarch an anarchist movement and talk a little bit about the history and the development of the movement and how we got to where we are as far as the movement is today. So Suffice to <laughs> say, we appreciate true pe people who truly believe in animal care, but don't be misguided. And that's what my podcast is all about. So I think cool. we've, we've provided a lot of great information. Thank you for all you do with the National Animal Interest Alliance. Thank you. And we will unpack more of this, I promise you. So thank you, Patty Strand. Thank you, Patty. Nice to see you again. You on. Great. I can't stress strongly enough what a great resource the National Animal Interest Alliance website is. And as I always say, go see for yourself, whether a zoo, a rodeo, circus, pet store, farm, go see, talk to the people who actually care for animals. Be willing and open to hear what they're saying. Encourage your children to do the same. Our future with animals truly depends on it. I'm Heidi Harriet. I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode of Animal Tales. It's really important to me to provide this information, provide the other side of the story about these amazing people and their animals. I'd certainly love your feedback. You can email me, animaltalespodcast at gmail.com. Also, please subscribe, rate and review us, and please share this with others. I hope you'll join me next time for Animal Tales. <laughs>